Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along with me as I read. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, look at us, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed, amazing love. (laughs) The song says it all. We are so grateful that because of your grace, lavished and loving us, you sent your son to come and die for us so that we could have a relationship with you. And that's only possible by our sin being dealt with, the crud in our lives. That was done by Christ shedding his blood, your son. And Lord, we thank you that he rose from the dead and he gives victory over death and thus the assurance that you not only gave your son, that it's not only the means for salvation, but through it we can have eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning that you would guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for this incredible story nestled here in the book of Acts. Guide us as we go to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 3, and if you're just joining us, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. I want to thank Ron for preaching last week. Fabulous job, Ron. Thank you so much for the challenging message that you brought from the life of Peter. Fills in the gap a bit, doesn't it, with the book of Acts. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a name is a word or set of words by which a person or thing is known, addressed, or referred to. And, you know, think about it. A name conveys great significance. For instance, if I said Disney, Rockefeller, or Lincoln, you'd immediately imagine Mickey Mouse, Money, or the 16th president. Well, Acts, not only Acts 3, but also Acts 4 is going to highlight a name, and that name is Jesus. And the power that comes through that name, 
And this has to be, I, I should, but it's one of my favorite scenes in all of the, of the New Testament. I love Acts 3. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. It says that Peter and John were going up to the temple. This is kind of like the dynamic duo. They were partners in the fishing industry. They prepared the Last Supper. They ran to the tomb together. And they are going to work together to establish the church. In fact, Peter and John are going to be the, the key words that will, each section here in three and four. Don't miss it. We'll see this as we journey through the next couple of weeks through these two chapters. And we're told they've gone up to the temple... This is early on in Christendom. They're still using the temple as a place of worship. And we're told they're going there for prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's significant. It will be for our story. We'll get there in a minute. There are three major times of prayer for the Jews in the first century. At 9 o'clock, those for the early birds, the morning people, right? There's the noon time. And the last period of the day is at 3 this is significant. It's the time in which you bring the incense, the, the sacrifice for prayer. And again, it's the last call to prayer in the daytime or of the day. And we meet an unnamed man, don't we? Now, don't miss his description. We're told in verse 2, first of all, that he's lame from birth. And the Greek is very clear. He's not just crippled in one leg. This man is paralyzed. And the text tells us he's carried. So that only highlights this. Later in Acts chapter 4, we're going to told that the man is over 40 years old. Luke is going to highlight the magnitude of the miracle. This isn't a guy who tripped and he just has a bad leg and all of a sudden he gets better. Uh-uh. For 40 years since he's been born, this guy has been lame. He's never ran up and down a basketball court. He's never tried a cartwheel or rode a bicycle. <laughs> That's significant as we get to this. We also see, as I mentioned here in verse 2, that he's being carried. So he is dependent on others. The idea like he's being brought like a bag of potatoes, laid at the steps. And verse 10 it says they recognized him. In other words, everyone knew this guy. Oh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> you got to remember, you, you've gone through the ritual baths to come up into the temple to worship. And here's this man standing there, unclean, a beggar. Oh, everyone moves this way to the, get through the door of <laughs> the gate. And he's dependent on others. He's dependent on they carry them. He's, and, and he's dependent on people to give. And let me further set the scene for you. Because in the first century in Judaism, it was understood that if you were lame, if you were blind, whatever physical ailment, it was a judgment from God. In fact, the Talmud states, blessed be the righteous judge if you suffer from these things. Oh, this is horrific. So not only are these folks going into the temple, but they see this one, oh, that's a shame, you've been judged by God. <laughs> Thankfully, John 9, remember the disciples asked the guy who was born blind? In John 9, the disciples said, who sinned, this guy or his parents? What does Jesus state? Neither one. He's been born blind for God to be glorified. And I think that's significant. Scripture time and time again highlights the value and sanctity of life. Recently, you probably saw in Canada, 
They are proposing and offering assisted suicide to people suffering solely from mental illness. Cool. In fact, in 2023, one out of 20 deaths in Canada are suicide-induced. I don't, induce is not the right word. Su committed by suicide, the death. They've pulled this proposal for mental illness, not because it was wrong, but because they said they don't have enough doctors to assess them. Wow. What a world we're living in. That was the world of the first century as well. Oh, well, then you must be cursed by God. What can we do about this? And Jesus said, he's been born blind. We're going to see this man is born lame for the purpose of God being glorified. We have to remember we're created in the image of God. And he alone is sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, God says, I put to death, I bring to life. Well, it clearly states all life belongs to God. And then I might add that God's purposes are beyond our understanding. And we can miss the point of suffering, which allows us to grow closer to God, but also to exalt his name to others. Don't miss that. So we see this man, he's been born lame. He's dependent on others. And as we again, we see he is begging for money. This is stated in verse 2 every day. In fact, he has been begging for money. It's dependent on this so that he could eat the falafel that evening. <laughs> it's dependent on paying those who helped him. And catch this, the desperation, it's 3 o'clock. This is the end of the day. There's not enough shekels in the tin can. <laughs> He's not going to eat tonight if he doesn't get a little bit more money. And while Judaism in the first century applauded giving alms to the poor, it also states, for instance, in the book of Sirach, an intertestament Jewish writing, Sirach 48 says that it would be better to die than to beg. This man is a social outcast. Don't miss this. He's less than human in many standards. And, and what a contrast, because you see where he's sitting by? He's sitting at the temple gate called the beautiful gate. This guy is, oh, and here's the, oh, right? There, there's such a contrast that's being established. The beautiful gate, many scholars argue this is the Shushan gate, the eastern gate, which led to the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. I don't think so, because that wasn't a common gate that's used. Others argue it's the the counter gate, which is the one that leads from the court of women into the temple proper. And it was made out of bronze. It was beautiful. But as a beggar, he's not allowed into the temple complex. He's defiled. I think it's, it's the holder gates. It's the main gates. If you've been in Jerusalem, you notice these old steps. You may even sat on them on your tour that leads up into what would have been the temple complex of the day. That's the gates that he was at. It's wherever all the activity occurred. I mean, this is the hubbub. There are two entrances or three entrances into it and two out. And he's standing there. He's lying there by the beautiful gate <laughs> begging for money. And here it comes, right? Verse 3. When he saw Peter and John, he thought, oh, maybe I can get some money from these guys, right? They look nice. I heard they're Christians, <laughs> right? He's about to go into the temple courts. He asked them for money. Peter looked directly at him and even commanded him to look at us. 
in that world, that was one of shame. I mean, here's this guy who, who is a social misfit. And, and he's told to look at Peter and John. Look at me in my eyes. With, and you can just see the shame. It's hard to look up. Alms for the poor. And twice we are told he expects a donation. Especially now when Peter and John say, hey, look at us. So the man, notice it says he pays attention. It says he expects, oh, good. I might get a few shekels enough to buy that falafel or baklava for dinner, right? An interesting article by an individual with disability wrote a, a commentary, a brief article on this passage. I love what she wrote. The temporary assistance of money was preferred over the permanent help of healing, revealing his acceptance of his hopeless situation. Wow. Been doing this for 40 years. Why would I expect, if anything, maybe I might get a few more dollars than I normally get. But it isn't sad with humanity as a whole, not just this man who is crippled, we fail to see the real need in our lives. The thought of earning more money, a bigger home, a boyfriend, girlfriend, making the team will bring us peace, comfort, and the happiness we need. <laughs> Forbes recently featured an article on a study that took 85 years performed by the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It concluded in, two, in 2023 this is what they concluded. We learned that people believe happiness is something they can achieve if they buy that house or get a promotion, lose enough weight, then happiness will follow. We act as if it's a destination we get to if we tick the right boxes, but the data very, very clearly shows this is simply not true. You didn't need 85 years, just read Acts 3. <laughs> I could have told you that. The lame man thought, if I just had a little bit more, I'll be okay. Oh, you have no idea, Mr. Lame Man. In verse 6, I love Peter. <laughs> he goes, I don't have any silver or gold. Or what he's referring to, I don't have any finances to give to you. I gave up fishing a long time ago. In fact, the last time I didn't catch anything. Right? <laughs> what am I supposed to give you? And notice what it rests on. It rests solely on Jesus there is nothing Peter, and might I add, I or us, possess. It's not our reputation, our talents and abilities, our pocketbook will ultimately change lives. Only the transformation that comes through the name of Jesus. There's a third application. I know I'm skipping around in your notes if you're following along. along. Down at the bottom, I state a powerful ministry understands the importance of resting in the name of Jesus. I think of Luke 10. The 72, they went out, they returned. They had seen the power of God work and it said, Lord, even the demons submit to your name. Wow. Think about your ministry, whether it's in the church or in a parachurch ministry, whether it holds an official title or no title at all. Our calling is sure because we're resting as a child of God through Christ. Our vision is clear because we're making disciples for Christ. Our desire is strong. We're exalting the Father through Christ. Our faith is tough. 
resting in the intercessory work of Christ. Our mission is urgent, noting the imminent return of Christ. Our reward is promised, glorifying in the blessings of Christ. As followers of Christ, we refuse to be dismayed, disengaged, disgruntled, discouraged, or distracted. Neither will we look back, stand back, fall back, go back, or sit back. We do not need applause, flattery, adulation, stature, or veneration. We have no time for business as usual, mediocre standards, small thinking, normal expectations, average results, ordinary ideas, or low vision. Why? <laughs> well, we will not give up. Why will we not give in, bail out, let turn over, quit, or surrender? Because nothing will separate us from the name of Christ. Right? That's who we are in Jesus. The power that comes. We don't cower. This is who we serve. And I love Peter. In verse 7, it says, he took hold of him. Now, this is a side note. But don't you love the what you see with Peter and John and their interaction with this man. They stopped. They approached him. They took time to talk with him. They extended their hand of encouragement and support. Remember, they were clean coming into the temple. It's a challenge, isn't it? When's the last time you or I went out of our way to be kind to those who are less fortunate, those who do not fit our social status I was with a group recently, not from our church, a secular setting. And you just sat back and you watched, and they're all vying for attention. They're all maneuvering to see what they can get out of the, the dialogue. And if you don't bring much to it, they would discard. And, ugh. <laughs> that should not be how we are. Uh, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a classmate, Maybe you need to buy their meal or just tell them in a small way how much Jesus loves them. Helping the person load their groceries or needing assistance in the aisle. Maybe you need to do a family day, a family work day, go work at the Midwest Food Bank or visit a shut-in or help someone who is sick by bringing them a meal. Offer to assist someone who cares for a shut-in or someone with special needs and say, hey, can we watch for a couple hours so you can just get a break? Maybe it's a neighbor who's struggling and they need their driveway snow plowed or you just need to go the extra mile and make sure you weed whack on their side of the fence. <laughs> Not right now, right? But don't miss it. In the midst of our kindness of reaching out to others, it's for the purpose of what? pointing them to the name of Christ. That's what's vital here. And Peter understood this. He says, look to this one. Now watch the man's response. This is where the music starts, right? He, <laughs> Peter takes his hand, raises him up, and the man's feet and ankles were made strong. This is another indication that he was uh, paralyzed. He jumps up and begins walking around. Thesen in his work on miracles in the New Testament states, in healings, the newly acquired physical power is demonstrated by activity. There's evidence that it's occurred. Not only does this guy jump, but Luke tells us five times he's walking in this text. Five times. He doesn't want you to miss it. There's no assistance. 
There's no learning to walk. Remember, it's been 40 years. There's, there's no rehab. Boom. He walks. And, the Luke, and Luke even tells us he leaps, which is significant because in Isaiah 35, 6, it says, at the time of salvation, the lame will leap like a deer. Here it is. God has moved. And, and so much so that what is the man's response? And it's stated twice in the text. He says he walks, he leaps, and don't miss this. He praises God. And all the people saw that he was praising God. I mean, he didn't care if anyone saw his hand raise up, if he was clapping. Woo, this is exciting. They make those Baptists break out in a rash. Right? Hey, this is exciting. Look what God has done. It, for the first time in 40 years, he too can enter into the temple and praise the Lord. He never had that opportunity. Oh, he watched everyone go in. He couldn't offer the sacrifices. He couldn't be a part of what was going on. And look at the crowd's response. There are several, there's actually four things that are noted about the crowd. One is they saw, this is mentioned in verse 9 as well as verse 16. They saw it with their own eyes. In fact, it says in verse 10 and in verse 16, they recognized. They didn't just see it. Oh, yeah, that is the guy. <laughs> that's the guy that used to, uh, yeah, that's, ooh, yeah, that's the one. They were filled with astonishment and amazement. It stayed in verse 10, it stayed in verse 11, it stayed in verse 12. And they ran, I love this, they ran to Peter and John in verse 11. While the man was hanging on to Peter and John, I love that. You would too, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, this is exciting. I gotta hang out with you. All the people completely astonished. Notice this, they ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's portico. We're now into the temple complex. And when it says into the temple, that, that refers to the 35 acres here of, of, of the temple, not just the temple proper. The Solomon's portico is if we entered into the temple, it's over to the right. It's a perfect place to meet. It's covered, uh, keeps you dry during the rainy season. But it was also a common place for discussion and dialogue. And so Jesus has taken the crowd, or Jesus, Peter and John have taken the crowd in the name of Jesus over there to dialogue and to share what God is doing. There's an application here that's there in your notes. This lame man vividly depicts the state of humanity. It's easy to look over there and go, mm, uh-huh, that's awful. But to realize, no, 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 no. Apart from Christ, we are helpless, failing to recognize our own true need and without ultimate relief from the world. I mean, think about our lives prior to salvation and how it resembles the lame man. Just do a comparative study. We had the inability to approach the Lord. We didn't bring anything to the table, just like the lame man. It was God who took the initiative. Here, he took it through Peter and John. Like the lame man, we are outcast among God's people. But God calls us his children and he allows us to be part of his family. Restoration via the name of Jesus. And like the lame man, we now have an opportunity to praise our God. Wow. <laughs> we do not have a religion that is of do, but Christianity alone is the religion of it's done. It's because of Christ. Nick Needham writes, pause then and contemplate. The eternal son of God, created the universe, worshiped and adored by angels and archangels, has offered himself in your place. 
He has offered himself freely, willingly, and gladly to endure the judgment that your sin deserves and to endure it in a holy way, saying the perfect yea and amen to the holiness of the judgment, which your corrupt heart could never have said. As far as atoning for your sins is concerned, the only thing you owe God is endless gratitude. That's the lame man. He understands what God has done in the name of Christ. And no, it's no surprise that praise is a natural outflow. When's the last time you have thanked God for your salvation? Christ told the church at Ephesus who had lost their warm, fuzzy feeling, oh, I'm, and, and I would get students often in my office, I just don't feel like I'm on fire for God anymore. Well, the solution's found in Christ's words to the church at Ephesus. Remember where Christ has brought you and return to the deeds you once did. It's simple. It's not profound. You don't need to read 30 volumes. Memorize 12 steps. No, it's very simple. Rehearse what God has done. And like the layman, you should break out in praise. It's that simple. And consequently then, you return to the deeds you did. Well, let's look at the text now at verse 12. When Peter saw this, he declared to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Now remember, this is the birth of the church. Up to this point, it's 100% Jewish or, Greek, or Gentiles who've been proselytes, God fears. All right, so we're dealing with 100% Jewish. And Peter says to them, why are you amazed? Why do you stare as if we made this man walk by our own power or piety? That had nothing to do with us. The God of Abraham, watch what he does. This is brilliant. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, the God who keeps his promises. He takes us all the way back to Genesis. This is the God we serve Notice what he says, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate after he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. You killed the originator of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this fact, we witnessed. We saw him crucified. We saw him raised from the dead. Remember, Peter and John were that dynamic duo that were at the tomb. They know. And then they saw Christ post-resurrection. And on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man whom you see and know strong. The faith that is through Jesus has given him this complete health in the presence of you all. What a great object lesson. You want to see proof of the power of Jesus? Look at this guy. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as your rulers did too, but the things God foretold long ago through all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent. Turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so that he may send the Messiah appointed for you. That is Jesus the one heaven must receive until the time of things are restored, which God declared from times long ago through his holy prophets. Moses, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 18. 
And then in verse 24, he says, and the prophets from Samuel. Interesting, he mentioned Samuel. I think it's a reference to the Davidic covenant, the promise God made to David. They're found in, in the books of Samuel. You are the son of the prophets, the covenant that God made with your ancestors, Abraham. Here's the Abrahamic covenant. He's tying this all together. He says, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you, to the Jew first. It's key to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. This will be the last time in the book of Acts it's offered just to the Jewish audience. When Stephen is stoned, he doesn't talk about the, this future promise because it, it, now it's all going to be future because they've not rejected. And we're told in Romans 9 through 11, it's so that we as Gentiles, non-Jews, can be grafted in during this time frame. But this is key. Let's, let's look at this. Here, there, if you're following in your notes, the miracle is, is meant to serve as a springboard into Peter's sermon. It's, it's similar to the miracles found in the Gospels. You don't want to miss what follows. It's vital. It's like a parable. You want to see what's happening at the end and also the context. And the same is here. Peter delivers four charges against the audience. <laughs> he hits them right between the eyeballs. Four charges, and he links them with names of Jesus. Now watch this. The first he says, you handed over him, you denied him. And he links this in verse 13 with God's servant, Jesus. The servant motif is key throughout the Gospels. I believe it links to Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant that is promised to Israel that would come and redeem. The God of the patriarchs reminded and serves again that God keeps his promises and you have not only handed him over, you have denied him. <laughs> it's interesting in Luke's writings, denied Christ is not used of the religious rulers ever in Luke Acts. It's never used of Pilate. It's used of only one person, Peter. <laughs> Peter knows firsthand, you don't want to do what I did. You, you, you don't want to deny this one. But not only is you handed over him and you denied him, verse 14, you also rejected him. And notice it's the one who's holy and righteous. Again, I think a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah 49 says, this is what the Lord, the protector of Israel, their holy one, says to the one who's despised and rejected by nations, a servant of rulers. Kings will see and rise in respect. Princes will bow down because the faithful and Lord, the holy one of Israel, has chosen you. Ironic, they would choose a murderer over one who is righteous and holy. But there's further irony. Because the next verse, verse 15, the fourth charge, you have killed this Jesus. That is the one, notice the title given to Jesus, the originator of life. Again, what irony. What irony. And so... We get to verse 16. Peter says, you have done these things to Jesus. And what, do you, what does your, your response need to be? Well, he mentions faith twice in, verses, in verse 16. A call to respond. The object of saving faith is not a creed, a church, a pastor, a ceremony, or a set of rituals. The object of saving faith is in the name of Jesus. 
John Newton, the quote down at the bottom of your notes, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes one's sorrows, heals one's wounds, and drives away one's fear. Do you know this Jesus? Are you like the lame man who keeps looking for things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter? And are so trivial to what's over here? Randy Smith writes, faith is belief. Faith is trusting God for the forgiveness that he has offered to us in Christ. Faith is believing the message that we can be saved from his judgment through the means which he has provided. Faith is rejecting our own goodness and trusting in God's goodness for salvation. And so I ask, have you placed your faith in Jesus, the one who came to serve you, the one who alone is holy and righteous, the one who is the originator of life? And the call is to look to this one, just as Peter said to the lame man, look, don't miss this. This is the one who can remove your guilt, give you peace, and heal your soul. He's the only one who can do this. That is Jesus. The call to respond to Jesus there then in the next several verses highlights again this call to repent. And notice what Peter states in verse 17. Ignorance doesn't alleviate the need to repent. You're not going to get to claim when you appear before the Lord, well, I just didn't really know those things. <laughs> Years ago, I was pulled over by a policeman. And he says, you realize you were in a school zone? I said, no, I didn't. I've never had a ticket. He says, well, you do today. <laughs> Ignorance does not exempt you from getting a ticket. Hmm. God's plan has been ordained. It's been given to the prophets. God's plan was for Jesus to suffer. Don't miss that. He states that very clearly here, and he'll mention it in verse 23. Again, talking about this one who has been handed over. It's been predetermined. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 23. In fact, turn to chapter 2, verse 23. We're reminded of this in our study. The man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God. It was God's design when he sent his son that he would die for our sins. And God's plan entailed not only sending his son to die, but also to be the firstborn from the resurrection because in verses 15 and in verse 26 of Peter's sermon here in chapter three, he talks about that God has raised up his servant. And that leaves us with another application there in our notes. The gospel message is a story of God's faithfulness despite human failure and rejection. Now think about it. We have been blessed with the ability to not only know God, but know how to live, but also how to die in Christ. It wasn't just that we were crippled by sin. We were rebellious. We were resentful and rejectors of the Lord. I love verse 2 of And Can It Be? Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraphim tries to sound the depths of love divine. Till his mercy all let earth adore. Let angels minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? Wow. 
And notice the blessings that come for those who have repented. They've placed their faith in Christ. Notice in verse 19, Peter states, repent and turn back from your sins so they can be wiped away. He'll repeat this in verse 26 as well. That term is unique. <laughs> it's like we have a spiritual Mr. Clean magic eraser, right? It, it, it blots it out. It, it wipes out the debt. Larkin in his commentary says, salvation is not by human right or by ethic origin, but it comes through response to the promise of God. But we not only have the forgiveness of sins, but the text tells us in verse 20, look at it, it says, a time of refreshing. Now I think certainly there's the refreshing of being in Christ and the blessings that come on this side of eternity, but there's, in the context, I think he's talking about what awaits those who have placed their faith in Christ. This term is also unique and it occurs only one other time in all of, in the Greek translation of Exodus 8. This time of relief was used when they had the plague with all the frogs and the frogs are removed. It says they, they had relief. <laughs> the troubles of this world, the disappointments, the sufferings and heaviness which culminate in the inevitability of our own deaths should pry our fingers off the things of the temporal world and have us grasping to the blessed truths of eternity. The great David Brainerd said, I love to live on the brink of eternity. That's where we should be. It challenges all of us, doesn't it, to have an eternal focus? In so doing, it'll free us from excessive dependence on earthly comfort and wealth it enables us to navigate the crud of the world and handle all of its injustices. It fosters endurance. It instills the need for righteousness and encourages our darkest hours in the hope that awaits. And what is that hope? What is it that ultimately we look to? Notice what he says in verse 20. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord so that we may send the Messiah appointed for you. That is Jesus we long for the day when we will be with our Savior. Sandy Patty's, we shall behold him. What a great song. She says, the angels sound, the shout of his coming, the sleeping shall rise from their slumbering place, and those remaining shall be changed in a moment, and we shall behold him. <laughs> face to face. We shall behold him, oh yes, we shall behold him. Face to face in all his glory, our Savior, our Lord, we shall behold him our Savior, and our Lord. I wish I could sing it like her, but I'll at least read it. And what glorious truth. If that doesn't excite you, you need to check your pulse. The opportunity we have, not only to have forgiveness of sin, the blessings here and in the future, but the opportunity to participate in the Lord's return. It's clear in the context, I would argue, that Peter is talking about the restoration of Israel and the fulfillment of the kingdom that should come when all of Israel return to their Messiah and the Lord will establish his kingdom. And that's why he, he's moved through the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and that, that future one. That he, he's talked about, I think, the Davidic covenant, alluding to that when he mentioned Samuel's writings and certainly the promise that was made to Abraham that he refers to in verse 25. I mean, he's tying this all together. God keeps his promises. 
Peter is reminding his audience, Jesus will return to establish his kingdom. But at this time, this we're going to see, and it's even mentioned here in verse 26, God, and sent him first to you. Implication, there's others that he's drawing in and a call to return. And again, the application there, number two in your notes, is the gospel message is a story of God's faithfulness, despite humanity's failure and rejections. What a glorious name is Jesus. If you don't know this one, we got a group that will be on either side of this platform that would love to share with you how you can know this one. Perhaps you know Jesus and you're finding that uh, you kind of want to wallow back to the gate. It was a little more easier, or it seemed easier at that time. People carried you. You didn't really have to work. Kind of liked the pity party. Look to him. Look to the name. Look to the one who grants unbelievable blessings here and all eternity. And the chance to be with this one whose name is power His name is healing. His name is life. Father, we come to you. Lord, forgive us. It's so easy to forget what you have done for us, those of us who know Christ as our Savior. Lord, and the the things of life... It's, it's like walking into a cobweb and trying to remove it and, and we lose all aspect of time as we're trying to get rid of those yucky cobwebs that we don't see beyond it. And Peter is reminding us, not only have we had our sins forgiven, those who've made a profession in Christ, but the blessings that are ours and that which awaits far outweigh all the cobwebs of life. Give us strength. May we not lose sight of what you have for us. Give us the joy in the midst of life's difficulties. Lord, and for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray, open their eyes to the truth. Open their eyes to the one and the only one who can bring healing. May they look into your face. May they bend their knees in repentance of sin and place their faith in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.